Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. Thanks for supporting me through this bizarre time. Uh, I gotta say that in a way, I can't believe this day has come. And in a way, I thought it would come many years ago because I didn't think I'd ever get the chance to make a TV show that I could write myself and not be censored and be anti-war and anti-corporate and anti-capitalist and do it for one episode, much less eight years. So in a way, it's like, it's it's over. And in a way, it's like, how did they let us do that? <laughs> Keep fighting. Keep fighting. was writer, passionately uncompromising comic, and host of Redacted Tonight, Lee Camp. And thank you, Marvin Gaye, which, along with other anti-corporate, anti-capitalist voices, has just been thrown off Spotify, while the right-wing racist rants of Joe Rogan and his show remain. And now, Camp and all the other outspoken voices of RT challenging the corporate media one-side-to-every-story stranglehold have been censored and disappeared as victims of censorship everywhere, with the country of India raising a loud objection against those online entities controlling everything we see and hear, India loudly objecting that you didn't ask our government's permission, raising a challenge as to corporate and online media seemingly increasingly wielding power over governments globally. We'll hear more from Lee Camp about that later in the show. And related to that, next is our Information Terrorism Watch. And in that One Side to Every Story corporate media episode as well, this week, what is going on with YouTube and Facebook banning Russian media around the globe? Again, without bothering to ask those countries if it's, well, okay with them. Here's the RT coverage, if it's blocked from your eyes and ears out there, and with investigative journalist Rick Sterling and internal affairs analyst Nebosa Malik, among others, weighing in, along with Twitter dissenters and even the UN, as to why Facebook blocks dissenting voices but opens up the channel to calls for violence against Russians and the assassination of the Russian and Belarusian presidents. YouTube has announced it's started blocking Russian state media channels around the globe. The platform said the decision actually complies with its policy barring content that denies, minimizes, or trivializes well-documented violent events. YouTube also said it was now removing content about the Ukraine conflict that violates its policy. The platform has blocked the RT Arabic channel and video agency Rupley, although the agency provided clean images without comment. Previously, YouTube had blocked RT and Sputnik across Europe. And social media giant Meta has broken its own rules against nationality-based hate messages as it supports public calls for violence against Russian soldiers. The American company, which owns Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, will also reportedly let users call for the death of the Russian and Belarusian presidents. The move has sparked a massive backlash online. We don't allow hate speech except against certain people from a certain country, is one hell of a can of worms. When hate speech, calls for violence, death threats, and praise for neo-Nazis are considered acceptable by Meta because of war, but only against the enemy, then they are clearly state-affiliated media. 
They're also directly promoting and encouraging conflict, violence, and war. Facebook is changing its hate speech policy so that some users can call for violence against Russians. And you can support the good Nazis, too. The move has shocked even the U.N. Human Rights Office, which says it will talk to the American company. The firm claims the decision is temporary and comes in connection with Russia's military operation in Ukraine. And the tech giant insists the decision is not aimed at inciting violence against ordinary people. In response, Russia's state media watchdog has blocked Instagram in Russia. We heard from guests about their views of the tech giant's new policies. Well, they're trying to uh, to achieve uh, an information stranglehold where they they you know can tell the public in in North America and and perhaps in Europe as well only what they want to hear. They're trying to block alternative news and information and facts. If the public is uninformed about what's going on, um, they can go along with it. Um, uh, not knowing any better. There should be public pressure. The United States used to laud itself on free speech, uh, but that is sadly a thing of the past. Anything that goes against their mainstream narrative, that there's, there can only be one true story about this conflict, and it's theirs. I'm honestly assuming that every single media that's been tagged uh, as, as connected to the Russian government by this American-based big tech will actually get banned because... Again, they they are just not willing to tolerate any sort of, not even dissenting, just just uh, uh, any sort of information stream that they can't control. They initially removed all these channels from Europe at the rather unprecedented and very disturbing request from the EU government. Uh, well, why could say, okay, fine, it's they're legally obligated to do so, however much we may like or dislike that. But doing this worldwide, I mean, who's the who's the government of the world that can give them that right? Or did they just assume that, you know, they're the they're the world censor, they can do they can do this because, you know, they decide who's right and who's wrong. And now on Arts Express, another topic hard to find in this country, immigration, the struggle of immigrants. Well, there's a dramatic series that places that struggle front and center, the cleaning lady about a Cambodian doctor, single mother, and undocumented immigrant, and as a kind of female Breaking Bad story, who gets caught up and exploited by organized crime. The story, adapted from an original TV series in Argentina, has been crafted by an immigrant herself, Chinese-Canadian screenwriter and actress Miranda Kwok. And phoning in from L.A. to talk about his role in the series as an FBI agent is Oliver Hudson. The actor, whose parents are Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, also reflects on how his family, including sister Kate Hudson as well, have influenced him creatively. First, some scenes from The Cleaning Lady, then Oliver Hudson. and waiting tables downstairs. I can make that happen for you. No, thank you, I'm fine. Just trying to help out. I don't need that kind of help. You too good for it? Let go of me. Who the hell do you think you're talking to? Get off me! What's wrong? Give me a knife! How'd you know how to do that? Maybe not. Where do you want to go first? Pluto. Pluto. Close your eyes and go to sleep. Weightless and free. I'm taking Luca to the clinic. You march in there and you talk to the wrong person, you're screwed. The visa for your bone marrow transplant. It's expired. I was a doctor in one of the busiest medical centers in Manila. I'm afraid we can't help you. Can you really turn away a five-year-old boy? You're an illegal. I'm just the cleaning lady. I can help you make this disappear. You have a great attention to detail. I take pride in my work. I want you on call. Everybody's got a dark side. You and I are both in a country that's not our own. Deep down in their blood. 
It's not about doing things the right way or the wrong way. Everybody's got a price. Any way you can. When they're on the wrong side, are they gone? Why do you want me to work for you? Because I don't want to have to kill you. Wipe everything clean. I did what I did to stay alive. We need to stay invisible. Your son is sick. I can help you. Tony De La Rosa? We have a few questions for you. I agreed to clean. But this is not who I am. Everybody got a dark side. Darling, this is mine. What was it about the cleaning lady that got you inspired and on board? Um, well, you know, I've typically done comedy. I've, of course, done, you know, other dramas as well, but it's been a big, a bit of a comedy run, and this came along, and I read the script, and I actually got to see the pilot, and it was really well done. It was really great. And so uh, I had never played an FBI guy. I think the take on an FBI person was a little bit different, you know, that, that the creator wanted, and I, I agreed with it. It wasn't so straight-laced and serious. And uh, I decided to go for it, go to Albuquerque for three, four months and shoot this thing and, and have some fun. And how did you go about figuring out your character, an FBI agent, and getting inside his head? Well, you have a conversation with, you know, the creator, Melissa Carter, and she... Obviously, because she has conceived the character, has an idea of what she wants, what her take is, and some things line up and some things don't. And, and in this case, everything sort of lined up, you know, and uh, we just didn't want him to be wearing a suit and tie and very straight. We want him to have some background and some charm and, you know, some issues himself and humanize him a little bit, you know. And what are your thoughts about the cleaning lady? in terms of the issues it raises about immigration and struggling immigrant mothers. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what this show at the heart of the show is about. Yeah, it's fun, and we're dealing with the mafia, and, you know, there's shoot-em-ups and there's all that stuff. But the, the foundation of it is sort of how far will you go as a mother to save your kid? Um, then the immigration sort of comes in, or this idea that she's undocumented and and trying to sort of do something that she should be able to do without issues. And I like the show because it doesn't, they don't hammer you over the head with it necessarily. It's just sort of trying to depict a reality. And a lot was gone into trying to um, really make that authentic, you know, even as far as the sets goes and the detention centers, just to sort of shine a light on what is happening, you know, and how you know, these undocumented people might be coming into our country, already in our country, and just getting sort of the short end of the stick, you know. Now, you're more than blessed with parents, as you have three of them, counting two dads. How would you say each of those talented and charismatic parents have inspired you creatively in your life, Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell, and Bill Hudson? And what was it about your family of actors that led you to follow the same passion in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. You know, I mean, from a creative standpoint, there's genetics at play. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have learned behavior where you watch how your parents do things. We grew up on movie sets. Mm-hmm. So we've seen how they've worked, you know, and we've seen how they've held themselves and how professional they are, you know. Um Creatively, I think you just ask questions and you take bits that you vibe with and then you leave others behind. So it's sort of a combination of such, you know. And with my dad, with, my, with Bill, his, crea- his creativity is just part, is run through my blood. You know, there's just mm. genetics there. I don't see him that much. So, you know, as far as learned behavior goes, that's not there. But there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. I'm a lot like him. You know, a lot like him. So it's kind of a fun, it's kind of a little, you know, it's, it's, there's blended creativities going on. And speaking of being on the set with your parents, 
you co-starred with one of your dads, Kurt Russell, in Executive Decision. What was that experience like interacting together in very different new roles than father and son? Yes, so my dad, that Executive Decision was a movie that I was a, a production assistant on. That was a long time ago. I was in um, Christmas Chronicles with him where he played Santa Claus. We didn't get to work together necessarily, but we were in the same film, which was, you know, we're, we're, we were a step away. But yeah, I played, I played the deceased father in that movie, and uh, it was really, it was fun. It was fun to have him on set. It was fun to be in that world with him, no doubt. Next step is uh, actually being on screen with him. That would be a treat. Hmm. And is there anything next coming up for you? Um, waiting on the cleaning lady. We air our last episode here, and then we'll hopefully get some information about what the future looks like for us, which is the second season. We want to be renewed, obviously, and it's going well. You know, all, all, all signs point to yes, but it's a strange business. Mm-hmm. You just never know. And any last word about the cleaning lady? Um, just check it out. It's really fun. And the beauty of this world that we live in right now, you can go watch it. You can go back to episode one and binge it on Hulu or and any other of these whatever streaming services they have it on. So it's, uh, it's exciting. It's a good show. And speaking of working on The Cleaning Lady during the pandemic, how have you gone about making it through the pandemic and staying positive? Um, well, it is what it is, you know. I mean, we, we're just living in it. There's nothing we can do about it. All we have to do is try to stay safe and adhere to the rules and, you know, and, and grind it out. And, and I think that we have done that. I think that we're we're getting close here. And as far as work goes, you know, we were in the middle of it. There were people getting COVID and stuff on set. But they, the way they structured it was it was right. And, and they had groups. And there was a whole protocol. And everyone stayed safe. Everyone's alive. And uh, we just got to keep rolling we're almost there i think uh, i uh i see someone who's done a lot and who has a lot more to do really you know uh both professionally and personally and you know, and life is a very interesting interesting sort of journey to take twists and turns unexpectedly so you know it's trying to be day by day live right in that moment future hasn't happened the past is gone so what do we got we have now and i try to be in the now and the cleaning lady is a hulu production and next on arts express censorship is now the opiate of the people we'll hear from redacted tonight's former host lee camp as mentioned earlier about what's been going down with camp's disappearance by the corporate censorship powers that be in this country, and why. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. As I record this, the Ukraine war continues in its all its horror. Sitting in the U.S., we get to watch media images of death and destruction, but we ourselves seem relatively cocooned, at least assuming we haven't walked into World War III, which there's still a pretty good chance we might do. In the U.S., we're presently dealing with fallout other than the nuclear kind. Of course, there's the economic fallout. As I speak, California gas is over $7 a gallon. And then there's the always popular xenophobia fallout. The banning of Russian composers, Russian cats, Russian opera singers, Russian vodka, Russian writers, Russian restaurants. Freedom fries, anybody? But that is just the usual in the long history of American xenophobic yahooism. More seriously, xenophobia is just the wedge for the ruling class to push forward their desire to dominate all forms of discourse through censorship. And that's the larger project for the ruling elite, the acceptance and normalization of government and corporate censorship. Now, as a show that showcases the arts, How can Arts Express possibly be in favor of censorship of any kind? You would think it's elementary that the ruling class wants that power to itself to crush all dissenting thought. This used to be a basic understanding for a long time among the left and capitalist countries. Not so much evidently anymore. How can censorship in the U.S. 
possibly help the rest of us. It's always going to boomerang on the left, no matter how well-intentioned you may think it is. But good news, according to internal emails seen by Reuters, there will be a temporary change to Facebook's hate speech policy. Meta platforms will allow Facebook and Instagram users in some countries to call for violence against Russians and Russian soldiers in the context of the Ukraine invasion. Good to know. It's nothing like an opportunistic suspension of a hate speech policy when it becomes too pesky to uphold. Well, it's important to understand the process of how censorship becomes accepted because normally most people do have a sense of a right to free speech. It has to be wrested from us under some pretext. The censors are always on the lookout for an issue that seems exceptionable. Yes, normally we wouldn't be for censorship, but this is such an egregious violation of common decency that we must censor. Think of the children. Think of the poor people dying overseas who happen to look just like us. And that's the opening that is seized upon, or if you like, created. And then the censors go to work. Maybe the saddest part of all this for me is that people in our society, including leftists, feel so powerless and so helpless to change things in this rotten system that they feel that the only way they can exert some power is to applaud censorship. Censorship is now the opiate of the people. Of course, it's illusory power because they're not expressing themselves, but their master's will, which inevitably, inevitably, will turn against them as well. So last week, RT America was shut down, and along with many great commentators on that station, Lee Camp, a socially aware comedian who had a show called Redacted Tonight, and who has been a great, funny, sharp analyst of capitalist depredation for years, have been silenced. And last week, Lee put out a video statement to his followers describing what happened. So we're going to play now part of that statement about the ending of Lee Camp's show, Redacted Tonight. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for supporting me through this bizarre time. Uh, I got to say that in a way, I can't believe this day has come. And in a way, I thought it would come many years ago because I didn't think I'd ever get the chance to make a TV show that I could write myself and not be censored and be anti-war and anti-corporate and anti-capitalist and do it for one episode, much less eight years. So in a way, it's like, it's it's over. And in a way, it's like, how did they let us do that? <laughs> so there, there's two sides of it there. I just want to let you know that in this episode, I'm going to, so I'm going to go through what happened, uh, what I'm doing, what my plans are. And also uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to talk, about what I think is the most censored side of this war in, in Ukraine, uh, just because it seems so important that I figured I'd throw that in there as well. In terms of what happened, for those of you who don't know, it wasn't just my show, it was all of RT America, shut down essentially instantaneously. Uh, this past Wednesday, they stopped programming. The, the managers just told us there'd be no programming on Wednesday. Uh, that includes everything. That includes the news. It includes Chris Hedges, Jesse Ventura, all of it. And then the following day, Thursday of this past week, they told everyone that it was all over and we were all let go. We're talking well over 100 people. Yeah, they and they don't give us any details. Uh, I don't know if that has if there's legal reasons behind that or they just chose not to. But for whatever reason, there there are no details that were given to us the mainstream media is thrilled which is hilarious because uh if you're a journalist you should defend other journalists you should want to see 
that their job is protected, that their ability to work is protected. So right there, the fact that there is no support, like, honestly, I dare someone to find an article from mainstream media. I think there might have been one in Politico that vaguely said RT America shouldn't be shut down. But our mainstream media is uh, a pack of corporate shill. Uh, and and they're not defending any of this. Of course, they're just dancing in the streets. Yay, we shut down the people. We shut down the really the the one one of the only outlets that showed how bad we are at our job. Now the truth is, they're not bad at their job. They're good at propaganda, but you know, potato potato. They look bad at their jobs because they're not actually trying to do real reporting. They're trying to do uh, essentially pro corporate propaganda since corporations own. The U.S. state, it's U.S. state propaganda as well. So, yeah, there's there's no defense from the corporate mainstream media. And there's a lot of theorizing in the mainstream media that this happened because RT just lost their platforms, basically lost their funding in a way, uh, their distribution networks. And therefore, oh, well, they just couldn't keep operating. I'd be very surprised if that were ever proven true because... So, yes, DirecTV and Roku both dropped RT America this past week before the shutdown. And those were two of their main uh, outlets. But there were many places you could still get RT America. It, they had a very successful uh, online platform called Portable.TV. And there, there are plenty of places you could still have watched RT America. So I would be shocked if they were just like, oh, we're not on DirecTV anymore. Everyone go home. It doesn't even make any sense. But the reason the mainstream media wants to push that narrative is because that basically says, well, it was the free market. It was the free market told them that we don't want RT America anymore. So if it wasn't that, then what was it? Well, was it staffing? Uh, some staff had quit uh, at RT America because uh, I, I get why some staff, these are all Americans, by the way. All, I mean, there were some people from other countries but at, at RT America. But for the most part, I'm talking about Americans working in the D.C. Bureau of RT America. Some quit, and I understand why, because many people are not. I understood why I was at RT America. I was at RT America to do a comedy show called Redacted Tonight, where I had complete free reign, said whatever I wanted, was never censored, and I'm anti-imperialist. Sorry, just am. I'm anti-war. Sorry. That's the reality. And so this was the only network at least on a large scale, that would ever allow me to do those things, uh, at least that I've seen so far. You know, maybe one will have some sort of change of mind. But it was the only one that existed. And so that's why I was there. So I was very clear on why I was there. I understood why I uh, had a show there. Whereas you had a lot of staff there that weren't political at all. They weren't anti-imperialists. They weren't uh, anti-capitalists. They weren't. They weren't any of those. They, you know, like most Americans, not not strongly political. They maybe had vague opinions, and so for them, in the midst of just a massive propaganda war by our mainstream media, they're they're getting nervous and they're hearing from their families. Oh my God, you're working for the dirty, dirty Russians in the middle of this, all this Russophobia and everything. And so some of them quit. However, I was there. There were plenty of staff to keep some of the shows going. They could have, if it had just been a staffing issue, RT America would have probably shrunk the lineup, maybe just done RT news. I don't know, but they could have done that easily and had enough staff to keep going, but that's not what happened. This all stopped every show instantaneously. So without evidence, like I said, they didn't tell us anything. I'm not going off of some secret knowledge, uh, just a theory. I, I think it's pretty clear that this either there's some sanction of RT America that has not been revealed that was so aggressive that made it impossible for them to operate. Or it was straight up, you know, Justice Department saying, get out of the country, whatever, you're done. Uh, either one, either one of those, if that's the reality, which I think it is, either one of those is an egregious assault on media, on truth, on our ability to have talking points outside of a little tiny corporate shill box of allowable thought. And it, it, it really, it should infuriate everyone. And by the way, anyone who's ever watched RT America, there's some really right-wing shows on there. There's some shows I didn't like because they are right-wing. Uh, you know, the Dennis Miller, the far right-wing Fox News shill. 
Uh, he had a show there for a, a past couple of years. It's amazing that the U.S. empire is so nervous that they can no longer put forward their propaganda on such a large level that they can no longer have basically cultural hegemony, have hegemony over the messaging, over the thought, because obviously if that's a, sorry, if that's the messaging, then that's the thoughts people are going to have. They're so nervous about that because American empire is, is, is fading. We're in late stage capitalism and it's getting ugly. They're so nervous about that. They, they have to purge anything that's not acceptable. Uh, now, some of you know, may know, it was not just Redacted Tonight that I lost this past week. Uh, so Redacted Tonight is gone forever because RT America is gone. Um, the Redacted Tonight YouTube uh, page is banned in Europe and the UK. Uh, I believe it's still that way. So if you were to go, if you're in Europe or the UK and you go to that page, you cannot watch any of our videos unless you get a VPN. Uh, and then my personal podcast, which aired some of the redacted tonight audio, but also had other stuff on it called Moment of Clarity, was deleted from Spotify. This all happened in the span of about three days. But this cross-platform deleting of a message of an idea of ideas is should be terrifying to everyone. It doesn't matter whether you uh, think only Ukraine is right in the war, whether you think only Russia is right in the war, whether you think they're both wrong and the war is insane, as I happen to think. Uh, whether you know it does, your stance doesn't matter. You should not want cross-platform purging of voices that are adversarial to the largest empire the world's ever seen. I mean, you look at militarily, it is the largest empire the world has ever seen. You know, I've been saying this for a long time. I'm, there's, there were some, so I, I think the first person we saw cross-platform purged was in a large way was Alex Jones uh, years ago, a few years ago. And I've hated Alex Jones. I think he is a, a, a snake oil sleazeball of the biggest kind. However, and he actually, doesn't he literally sell snake oil? I think he literally sells snake oil. Anyway, they, uh, despite the fact that I don't like him, I said what happened to him is dangerous. And what they did to him was they took him off basically all of his platforms at once except for uh, his website, his uh, personal website. That doesn't mean I support like, oh, FM radio has to give him a platform. No, people do not have to have platforms. But when you see them knocked off multiple platforms simultaneously, it shows and I know this is a creepy word. It shows a conspiracy, doesn't it? Like, because conspiracy just means to conspire. I know. Sounds very creepy, doesn't it? It means people got together and they talked about things. Uh, and so when you see multiple platforms do this to someone or a voice or an idea, uh, you know, or someone putting forward ideas at the same time, that means there were people conspiring. The CEOs, the tops of these platforms got together and said, we are getting rid of these things. So... This should be infuriating to everyone instead of just a few people getting mad and everyone else going, yay, we got rid of the bad guys. It is so, it, it's intellectually dishonest, if not intellectually pathetic. It's, it, it lacks all context to celebrate uh, restraint of thought. And I want to get to what I believe is probably the most uh, censored, the most redacted side of what's going on in Ukraine is that you see this massive push, uh, whether you want to call it propaganda, you want to call it just totally legitimate, uh, massive push by all of our mainstream media, all of our outlets saying, oh my God, the Ukrainian civilians, we got to care for them. We got to feel for them. And look, I'm opposed to all war. So I'm, a, I'm opposed to the death and harm of all civilians. Uh, I'm opposed to every goddamn bomb that drops. So I'm not saying don't feel for hurting people. But, and then of course, there's the hypocrisy of for all the people dying in Yemen. But anyway, that aside, for all of this mainstream push of like care about these people, oh my God, you got to care about these people and you have all of America, honestly, like in a, in a kind of ignorant froth, frothing at the mouth, We've got to help these people. Now, I like that idea of helping people, but here's the irony and the censored side of it. The United States does not want this conflict in Ukraine to end. 
and, and, and you know, I, I won't speak for all of I will I won't say that all of NATO doesn't want it to end, but probably a fair chunk of NATO as well. But the U.S. specifically, which is the biggest push behind this, the U.S. was the biggest push behind expanding NATO into Russia's borders. The U.S. was the biggest push behind uh, 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 pressuring Ukraine to keep arming itself to the teeth and uh, supporting neo-Nazis. So the U.S. is really calling the shots here, even if they're not the, uh, the boots on the ground, so to speak. But the U.S. government and therefore the U.S. media that, you know, all these stations that are essentially just mouthpieces for the U.S. state. They don't want this to end and they don't want it to end for multiple reasons. A, it is useful to the U.S. permanent war state to have Russia bogged down in a fight with fellow Russians. I mean, a lot of Ukrainians consider themselves Russian. So this is kind of like, you know, Russians versus these are like family members versus each other in some cases. But. They don't want this to end because it bogs Russia down. It hurts their economy. It's if you if you ban all opposing viewpoints, it's a propaganda win for the U.S. Uh, uh, empire, and it also hurts Russia's economy because they're able to sanction them endlessly. They cut off all their oil deals, etc. But the U.S. is fine with this dragging out for as long as possible, which means. By association, by by you, you use that logic piece of your brain. That means the U.S. government right now is rooting for more death and destruction. Because if you want this to keep going on, then you want people to die. Because there's no war, there's no active war where people don't die. There's no active war where civilians don't die either. So the U.S. government right now wants more people in Ukraine to die because they want this to keep going. They are happy with where this is headed in terms of the propaganda. They're happy with where this is headed in terms of the sanctions. They're happy with where this is headed. As Hillary Clinton or, or Condoleezza Rice said, uh, this is united NATO in a way that I never thought it could. So they like that. They're enjoying this. They, the U.S. government is viewing this as a win for them right now. Now, long term, I don't know, but right now. So... The U.S. government does not want this to end. Therefore, the U.S. government wants more people to die in Ukraine. It seems to me the U.S. very much wants to continue this. And so I think that is the biggest censored side of this. Like, if you actually care for the Ukrainian people, if you actually care for innocent civilians, if you actually care for all the people fleeing that country, if you actually care for all those things, then you should want this to be over. And you should not want all of the end endless U.S. propaganda that actually does not want this to be over. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. And Lee has announced that he will be seeking to reorganize the show under different auspices. You can follow and subscribe to Lee Camp at patreon.com slash Lee Camp. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And coming up next on Arts Express... With the emergence of mid-20th century women filmmakers in a move to overhaul that standard appearance of female characters as mostly secondary and primarily victims of violence, one film in particular stood out in the vanguard, Patricia Rosina's I've Heard the Mermaids Singing, and essentially giving a voice to women in movies and in particular interacting with each other when men aren't around. And I've Heard the Mermaids Singing is currently in a retrospective re-release across the country. Director Patricia Rosima addresses the continuing fascination the film has inspired these 35 years. But first, some scenes from I've Heard the Mermaids Singing. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, testing, one, two, three. Hello? My name is Polly Vandersma, and I'm a Girl Friday. Well, actually, I became a person Friday a couple years ago. I didn't change the job very much. Anyways, my new boss was a curator. Bonjour. Bonjour. Oh, she loved to talk about art things. And like, like whose work shows talent, and whose doesn't, and um, whose work shows Acute awareness, like, at first I thought she meant like a cute face. Acute awareness. <laughs> it's an external transformation. Internal. 
External, look at the lemon. What about the fork? Oh, the fork is irrelevant. I could never really... I could never really talk to them about all the things I think about sometimes. And all the things I've seen. Sometimes I think my head is like a, a gas tank. You have to be really careful what you put into it, because it might just affect the whole system. I mean, isn't life the strangest thing you've ever seen? Now, with this reopening of I've Heard the Mermaids Singing, your first ever feature film in 1987, what do you think is the movie's enduring fascination over these 35 years? Wow, maybe that's not for me to say. <laughs> but I feel like a, uh, something that struck a chord in its day and perhaps still does is that it respects the artist in all of us. Um, I, I can't tell you how many people after they saw it came up to me and said they felt seen by it because it you know it features a character who's unsung and has none of the obvious markers of an artist doesn't have the cool or the the, the language or the you know the evident success and and yet you know I I reveal their internal landscapes and their their the, the poetry within them, you know, and 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 give them some dignity, and I I feel like that matters to people. We're all trying so hard to be seen on some, and 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 valued on some deep level, and hence the maniacal need for self-portraiture and, and all these selfies everywhere all the time. So I feel like that has has made a difference. Yeah. And how would you compare and contrast how the film is received now by audiences as different in any way from back then? Oh, I mean, there's lots of amusement at the 80s hairdos and shoulder pads. and you know, <laughs> like it, it really reflects its era. Cause I, you know. But what was, what's actually fascinating to me is that all the things that reflect its era were the attempts at cool on the part of the people who were, the characters who were, you know, artists and, the, you know, curator and a painter and, um, whereas the central character, who's just so out of time and out of step with her time, is still somehow, you know, eternal and is just that person who never quite gets with the trends, you know. <laughs> so um, how is it? Like the the humor actually still holds. I just watched it a little while ago um, with with the contemporary audience, and and they, they, the, the the jokes still work. So <laughs> that's. Uh, that's um, that's comforting, and um, I feel like, uh, well, you know, I mean, it leans heavily into charm, especially at the beginning, I think, and that may have been a result of a kind of uh, uh, Calvinist self-loathing on my part, <laughs> to be perfectly frank. And in what ways do you identify with your protagonist, Polly, or not? Oh, I, in every way possible, every self-doubt would channel, you know, and uh, it doesn't matter who you are, like, everybody struggles with with, with whether or not they're worth it. So uh, I, you know, I, I also loved um, speaking through someone who doesn't speak well, <laughs> you know, speaking through someone who isn't. Uh, sophisticated or uh, educated, and um, I feel like there's you can kind of reach for a kind of poetry and a philosophy. Like for her to say, 
you know, half lives, half lived, you know, to, 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 to address those things with a sense of wonder and um, to, I did, I did feel like I was allowed more because I made her so humble and so awkward. Now, you once said, the most cinematic thing in the world is the human face. What can you say about that and in relation to your filmmaking? Well, it's all about connection and communication, and there's, there's nothing as subtle and engaging as a, as a face, you know? Dogs know that's where the... Mm. <laughs> and, and babies, everybody, you know goes to the the face and the eyes and all these you know t- tiny flickers and movements are, are 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 what we breathe what we live on what we hunger for so um there's nothing like what else what else would 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 would, would be equivalent you know that there's nothing there's nothing more um necessary we we need we need contact. We're we're desperate for it. We're we're such uh, we're such social beings and so hungry for communion with with other humans, and that comes through faith. And what have been the challenges for you in being a female director in the male-dominated film world? Um, well, there's definitely been challenges being female in a you know male-dominated world, and they they've. Many of them have fallen away now that women are in style. Um, but, um, you know, in my day, I, I think I probably was um, taken a little less seriously uh, than I otherwise might have been. Um, there was this assumption that because my characters were female, that um, that it was in kind of, you know, niche and uh, not part of the kind of main conversation of, of cinema because the main conversation was the arc of the white male, you know, triumphant over everything and everyone else. And I wasn't doing that story, so I wasn't part of the, the, the grown-up conversation. Uh, I mean, I, and, and, and as soon as I say that, I don't want to diminish the, 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 the response and the respect that I did, did receive with my work, you know. But... Um, so yeah, just a little bit of a sense of uh, um, being sidelined, and it's funny. I I I can I go into meetings now, and I get the feeling that young white handsome dudes must have had for their whole life up until now. Going into a meeting where people want you to be good, people want to like what you have to say, they want to hire you. They want to feel like you're going to be the one to, you know, make this thing sing for them. Or um, and where, whereas in the past, I feel like you go in, they go, okay, what womany thing is she going to have now? All right, she probably wants to put in some lesbians. You know, like there's a there's a, a, a there, there's been a resistance up until uh, very recently, I think, towards um, uh, the female uh, perspective. And um, oh, it's so exciting now! It's yeah. so exciting to and all these, you know, young women coming out and all these themes. Like the mother-daughter story has never really been told, and there's so many films out there now that's it's such a profound bond and struggle and link. You know, so it's um, there's there's so many stories that have yet to be told, and that's just like there's so many uh, exciting aspects of our world that haven't been uh, explored. You know, it just surfaces and scratch, so there's lots to come that's going to be <laughs> eye-opening. And speaking of mothers on screen, what are your thoughts about all the bad mothers in movies that come up every year? We actually cite the worst screen mothers each year with our Women Film Critics Circle Awards of the best and worst each year. If the people making the movies and the people funding the movies are all male and and stories need an antagonist it's not going to be the male right there are mothers who are terrible you know that's that's definitely now do you react any differently when seeing i've heard the mermaids singing now in contrast to when you made the film do i react any differently um i don't i don't 
tend to go back and look at my work very often. Um, but uh, no, I'm 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 proud of its freedom, and I actually am encouraged to be that free again. I made a film recently called Mouthpiece, um, which is going to be on Mubi March twenty third, twenty fourth, um, uh, and it's kind of I I I. Want to always to I want to come come back to that source again, come back to a place of real uh, visual freedom and humor. Actually, sometimes I haven't played that um, side of um, my 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 voice, and I I want to uh, I want to do that more because, gosh, if you can make people laugh, you can take them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And any last word about your film reopening now? Oh, it just delights me that I could make something in relative, you know, privacy. I was so I was so careful not to hope for success because I was afraid it would uh, pervert it. <laughs> I was afraid it would make me uh, self-conscious and and egotistical and striving for uh, a kind of. Uh, uh, success that would, 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 would ruin its authenticity. So to, you know, and I just would slam down that idea if it ever cropped up in me, like, well, what if people like this? No, don't think that way. It's going to make it worse. Um, so to have it still somehow um, engaging with people and part of the conversation is a thrill beyond thrill. And you can check out the schedule for I've Heard the Mermaid Singing Retrospective screenings across the country at the Kino Lorber website, kinolorber.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.